You're wrong, Emily. Civics, <laughs> <laughs> y'all. A political conversation for all of us. So it's a letter from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison on September 6th, 1789. And the first line I want to read is near the front. It says, the question whether one generation of men has a right to bind another seems never to have been started either on this or our side of the water. Yet it is a question of such consequences as not only to merit decision, but place also among the fundamental principles of every government. I, what I really like about the next thing that I highlighted, he says, I set out on this ground, which I suppose to be self-evident, that the earth belongs in usufruct to the living, that the dead have neither powers nor rights over it. The portion occupied by an individual ceases to be his when he when himself ceases to be and reverts to the society. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And then the last part is... Um, says, on similar ground, it may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. They may manage it then and what proceeds from it as they please during their usufruct, which I need to look that word up. They are masters too of their own persons and consequently may govern them as they please, but persons and property make the sum of the objects of government. Every constitution then and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it be in force longer, it is an act of force and not of right. A usufruct is it's the right to possess something for a lifetime. So usufruct is you own like you can live in this house and own this house until you die, and then it goes to you know whatever heir was supposed to have it, you know, upon the death of the previous owner. That's kind of like British hereditary obviously he's not talking about a house well he, he does he does talk about a house at, and that's that makes complete sense he talks about whether or not like a widow and children versus like debtors you would you know would get property or a house after the, the death of a person but he he does kind of talk about debt in this letter as well which i find really interesting as somebody who i feel like you know, my generation, the generations after me, maybe every generation feels like this, but I feel like we really have inherited the debts of the previous generations. We've inherited the debt of none of the other generations having previously really dealt with sort of our moral sin, like our first, you know, what do they, what do they call that, of, of slavery. Like no generation before us has really ad- addressed what our countrymen did, what our country did with the institution of slavery and what it continues to do after slavery, what it did during reconstruction and what the ways in which slavery has just sort of mutated into other and into other institutions. And those of us that are living now are really suffering under the burden of that, that that's never really been addressed by our, by our culture, by our, by our government. And I think also just monetarily, I feel like I've inherited so much debt from the previous generations. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments. So this section right here was planned for our original episode four, which was going to be about amending the Constitution. And we did 
have a little bit of that conversation, but it, it kind of went far afield pretty quickly. And so we scrapped it. And instead we decided to talk about partisanship because that seemed to be the thing that we most wanted to talk about. So that's what this episode is actually about, partisanship, not amending the constitution. So I've been thinking a lot about how, when we were trying to record the last two episodes, the um, checks and balances episode and the amending the constitution uh, episode, we got a little off topic because clearly like what we really needed to talk about was what we were talking about, which I kind of boil down to partisanship or the two party system because we were talking about how both sides fail to sort of hear or like work together and how both sides kind of assume the other side is acting in bad faith. Would you say that that's a fair assessment of sort of like the conversation that we've actually been having? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, more or less. I think you feel that the right side, the the conservative side is operating in bad faith and that you and the left are operating in good faith. And I would argue that the right feels the exact same way about the left that you feel about the right. They feel like the left is not operating in good faith. They feel like they are operating in good faith. My position, having had fairly quality conversations with both sides, is that both sides, I'm not going to say are operating in good faith. That's probably not true. But neither side is really operating in bad faith. Um, It's just there are disagreements between approaches and philosophies, but more importantly, there are separate sets of facts that each group is operating off of. It's hard to have conversations when um, you're operating from two completely different sets of facts. The more I think about it, the more I agree with you which surprises me <laughs> because when, when we're having the conversation, I can be persuasive. You know. <laughs> no. Well, and we already talked about my tendency to drink the Kool-Aid. No, but no, um, the more I think about it, because when we're having the conversation and this is why I've been sort of determined to like have the conversation again, but on purpose is so that I can be prepared for it and enter into the conversation sort of knowingly and having put some thought into it so that I could sort of, buttress myself against the the trauma as much as possible because you know both times we were talking about stuff and got into this conversation like some deep trauma welled up and it wasn't like I don't want to say I was traumatized by the conversation because that's not the case I was triggered by the conversation and that's like nothing to do with you well not nothing to do with you but that it's kind of incidental because we're talking about something that triggers you know a trauma but what I realized is that I, I agree with you that these two sort of polar opposite sort of partisan groups are kind of both equally acting in good and bad faith simultaneously. And you know what, I'm going to bring up the conversation you started to before you said, well, let's take abortion, for example. And normally, when I'm not already, you know, triggered by trauma, I'm like, happy to talk about abortion. I'm like, usually the person that brings it up in a conversation. And the way that I want to bring it up the way that I feel like it's related to this conversation is that the debate over abortion really pisses me off. It really pisses me off because it's not a proper debate. Like when you have a debate, like a proper debate, as I understand it, you have a pro side and you have an anti side. You like you decide what the issue is and you and like what's the pro and what's the anti. And someone takes the pro and someone takes the anti and then you hash it out, right? That's a debate, like a proper debate. 
But when you talk about abortion with somebody, you enter into the conversation almost always with somebody who disagrees with you about abortion without having agreed upon what the issue is you're debating. The issue that you're debating is choice, whether or not individual women have the right to choose what happens to their bodies, right? That is the actual issue that is being debated. But because, in my opinion, the conservative sides do not want to be anti-something because that's a bad look, at least maybe that's their sort of strategy, they take the, oh, we're pro-life. And then that forces the other side to either decide whether or not they're anti-life, which like, no, they're not anti-life. So then they're pro-choice. So you have two pro-sides in a debate. So literally the two sides are not debating the same thing. Literally. So wait, so what do you feel they are debating? What do you feel they are arguing? I feel like I, and this is why I feel like they're acting in bad faith. This is a really great example. And individual people who have this debate may not understand that they're acting in bad faith, that they're not debating properly because, you know, they're paying attention to a set of information, right? And then they're, I think in their minds, they're acting on good faith on that set of information. In their minds, they think that they're, or maybe they, they really genuinely feel that they're debating, you know, life. That's what they believe they're debating. My position is that, there is no debate about life at that point, because if I am pregnant and if there is a fetus inside of me, it cannot survive outside of my body. That is not life. And then I saw someone post something on Facebook or somewhere what it's about the heartbeat bills that they've been that they've been pushing. Fetuses do not have heartbeats until like a certain week of their development. Right. So like you're you're debating the life and I'm putting that in quotation marks of a handful of cells that are developing, right? Whereas my life, the person who contains the handful of cells has seemed to slipped off the radar entirely, right? And then if you wanna get really didactic about it, the same people who are fighting for the lives of creatures, cells that do not have heartbeats often or brain stems or ears or eyes, you know, because those things all develop later, depending on what, at what point in the development for the same people who were fighting for the lives of those handfuls of cells against sort of the wishes of the container, the, the, like the life containing those handful of cells are also locking up actual people in cells, including children. They're taking away like infants from their mothers and keeping them in like God awful conditions. They're. I, I hear what you're saying. What I'm not hearing is why you think that's a bad faith argument on their part. I don't think it's the bad, and that's where, where you and I were not having the same debate. Like we were not debating the same thing. When I'm talking about these bad faith arguments, I'm not talking about individual people. I'm talking about the rhetoric set up by the conservative party. I'm talking about the, the brainwashing that has been happening for decades in order to get sort of foot soldiers who don't have the time and energy to properly research these things, who want to believe, as we all do, they want to have faith in people in authority and positions of authority who, who have been vetted, they believe, by other people that they also trust. And that's the problem that like Courtney and I talk about in my interview with her is how for a long portion of our lives, you know, we only voted in presidential elections. We may not have been super well informed. We were sort of taking what we learned or believed to be true about the party and we were voting for the party. 
and we weren't necessarily voting for the person because we didn't ne- we didn't necessarily know how to vet that person or to learn more about that person. And then when it came down to local politics, we didn't do that at all. We didn't vote in like special elections that didn't involve like a presidential ticket because we were either working or we didn't have the time to do the research. You know, and I might have actually voted in, in local politics if I was there for the presidential election. I probably just went down the ticket picking the D's, you know, like any of the candidates that had a D. Like I know the judges category is always so difficult for me or like the city council categories because there might be multiple like Democrats running. So how do you evaluate Democrats within the same party when you're not used to vetting your candidates yourself, you know, if you're used to just voting along party lines sort of blindly and what you believe to be good faith. So I don't think the individual people, like, I don't, I don't agree with like the basket of deplorables that gets sort of applied to people who disagree with me. I don't necessarily believe that. I have great one-on-one conversations generally with people that disagree with me, as long as there's not an imbalance of power. It sounds like that's not the case because what you what you said in your earlier statement is that they're not informed and that they're buying into rhetoric and propaganda without having thought the thing through. But I also said that I wasn't informed and I was buying into rhetoric and propaganda. So what I'm saying is, is that too often all of us, regardless of our party affiliation, have been too busy to do our own research, to do our sort of own analytical thinking about what we believe and what the other, the person that is running believes and what they're going to fight for and what they're not going to fight for. That's all of us, right? That's not people I agree with and, and people I disagree with. That was me. That was my friend Courtney. That was almost everybody who didn't have a special hobby or special interest in politics, right? Or the time to investigate that. And I believe that that was all of us. So I believe what happened, what has happened for decades, is that individual people have been acting in good faith. And so when I say acting in bad faith, I think it's the two parties. I think probably you're right that like the two parties aren't acting in good faith, right? Like I just finished reading Cast, you know, by Isabel Wilkerson, which is just absolutely mind blowing, and um, it reinforced a lot of stuff that I've been reading in other in other books and a lot and a lot of what I've been feeling and thinking as I've been sort of investigating but it also taught me new information and it like the Republican Party has done especially in the last couple of elections has done a better job of taking on the concerns of their constituents better than the Democratic Party has so like the Democratic Party by and large has been most consistently and most overwhelmingly like the party of like African Americans and of um, immigrants and, you know, of anyone that has been sort of marginalized over, over the time. But the Democratic Party has not taken up like Black Lives Matters and like defund the police until now, maybe. And they, I think that they're finally starting to understand that they have to take on the concerns of their constituents, especially like the majority of their constituents, as deeply and passionately as the Republican Party has taken on the concerns of evangelical like white Christians in America. No, I think that it's not so much that the Republican Party has taken on the concerns of their constituents. I think they've done a great job, a much better job than Democrats at forming what's important to the conservative mind. Now it sounds like you're saying they're brainwashing. Oh, they are. Both sides are. I mean, like both sides are propaganda machines. One is way better at it than the other. Like Republicans are far better at propaganda and politics 
than the Democrats are, but they both are doing it. Like, there's no, like, you know, holy night in this, you know, two-party system. Like, both of them are corrupt. Both of them are selfish. Both of them are, are out for their own political gain. But having said that, the ideas that one party has versus the other, it, it does matter, especially now with, you know, the stark polarization uh, b- between the two parties. Well, it sounds like, and this is the funny thing, is how heated our conversations have gotten before when we mostly agree. That's been really surprising to me. Yeah, tell me about that. Like, what, what is what is the trauma? Tell me about this trauma that you're feeling when we have these discussions. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because um, did you watch the debates like between Hillary Clinton and, Pre- and, and Donald Trump? Like, I ain't even calling him president. But did you watch when he was a candidate, when they were both candidates, did you watch the debates um, leading up to the election? I watched. Okay. Yeah. So do you have any like visceral and strong memories, particularly of any of the debates? Not really, no. <laughs> but I, I know where you're going with this. And I, I remember um, Hillary Clinton saying it, you know, after the fact that it felt like he was leering over her and she felt kind of threatened and, and all of that not being female i i understand that that is probably something that i did not pick up on right it's really kind of interesting because like right after the election right after donald trump was declared the winner against sort of the the wishes of the majority of the americans <laughs> right after that happened i had sort of quietly started reading a whole bunch of books, not even fully understanding what I was doing, even before the election, like in the run up to the election, I was kind of retreating into myself and retreating into books and trying to like comfort myself and also educate myself. And I was reading a whole bunch of books. And the like the day after or the week after the election, I was at work and this young girl came in and she came up to me and she goes, and she sounded like if someone were rushing up to you in this sense of urgency, like someone was chasing them or like they, like there was this real sense of urgency. Right. And she said to me, where are the books about feminism? (laughs) And I was like, come right this way, please. And I just started handing her books. And I, I only realized at that moment what I had been doing. Um, I had been sort of making a reading plan, a syllabus for myself in my head to try to understand what was happening and what I was feeling. And um, I just started handing her a whole bunch of books. I handed her Everyday Sexism by, I think her name is Laura Bates, which is a uh, started out, I think, as a Twitter handle. And I would definitely recommend that to especially any heteronormative men, because if you want to try to understand like the way that statistics you see a statistic about the numbers and that doesn't really mean anything. And then you hear like an anecdotal story. Like you hear a woman tell you something that's happened to her. And depending on who she is to you or where you are in your life, you believe her, you don't believe her, you care, you don't care. But regardless of whether you believe her or you care, it doesn't seem to have much relevance. It's just anecdotal. Right. But like that book, everyday sexism kind of unites like statistics and anecdotal experiences in a way that I feel like is really powerful for especially men to to read and to and to take in. And then another one called The Feminist Utopian Project. And that one was also very like impactful for me. Like I I have never stopped thinking about some of them. They're like individual essays or short stories that kind of try to imagine what a feminist utopian society would look like. And the one I remember probably the most clearly 
was a um, like a high school girl who had a baby and she was allowed to still continue in high school and her infant was in the daycare associated with the school. And so she could take breaks in between her classes and go breastfeed her child, knowing her child was well taken care of and she could focus on school when she went back to her classes. And that was like the best thing for both the high school mother and the the infant. And it like stripped away all of the sort of judgment about her situation, you know, because it is, you're probably most likely to have a healthy child when you're in your late teens and early twenties. And how do we lay that piece of information over our society in a way that like actually takes care of human beings in their society instead of saying, okay, well, your life is over as an individual human being with options. If you have a child when you're a teenager, instead of biologically, that's a great time to have a child, you know, except that it derails all of your plans because our society is built in a way that punishes you for that supposed choice that you made. It depends on the person's individual life, whether or not that was a choice and how much of a choice that was, especially when you look at abstinence-only education. And again, I'm ranting right now, but these things are all related, right? And so to get back to your question, I viscerally remember, I feel my breath getting short when I think about it. Like it's happened a couple of times when we've talked about it. This trauma comes up. When I think about the second debate and the way he stalked and leered at her around the stage, the way he brought women that her husband had had affairs with or, or had claimed had had affairs with her husband to the event in order to shame her and embarrass her because she's she's the one responsible for her husband's behavior right and then just the physicality of it of this like this man who's admitted to assaulting women stalking his opponent around the stage and no matter how well prepared how intelligent how experienced how well spoken she is he can just chase her around a stage and nobody's nobody's going to do anything about it. Nobody's going to cry foul and be like, this is not appropriate behavior for a debate. That you're not treating your, your opponent as if they're a fair opponent. And instead, you are like pointing out to the world how unfit you think she is for power because she's a woman by treating her like literally prey. And any woman who had ever been stalked, who'd ever been a followed down an alley who'd ever been assaulted recognized what was happening on that stage and then also recognized the futility of it and just realizing that like this country has never been built you know with our our rights and our happiness in mind and that's what I get back to when we talk about partisanship because I look at the constitution and I remember that neither one of us neither you or I was imagined to be a citizen by the people who wrote the Constitution. And then that wonderful letter that Jefferson wrote that I keep coming back to, where he basically says that, you know, each generation needs to make its own laws and should not be bonded to the laws of the previous generation or to the debt. He talks about debt and laws in that letter. And we have been bonded to the laws and the debt of like every generation before us, including Jefferson's generation, like because we've never fully reckoned with slavery, because we've never fully built our society for everyone who lives in it. We've never analyzed like, why don't we just have daycares at schools? Instead of judging, you know, people who have children, why don't we just accommodate them so they can continue to have children and continue to contribute to society and continue to pursue their dreams and their intellectual pursuits and contribute to society in both ways? Like how much intellectual like capital have we lost out on because we were not prepared to accept that a, a woman could be both things? And 
cast introduced us to a baseball player in one of the chapters that I, I want, meant to remind you about. I forgot his name off the top of my head, who was never allowed to play in, in the professional leagues until he was like in his 40s and 50s. But they did pull him in in his 40s and 50s, and he still won championships for them in his 40s and his 50s. I think in Cleveland was one of the cities. Satchel Page. Yes, Satchel Page. Thank you. What more could he have done when he was in like the height of his ability in like his 20s and his late teens and his 20s if he'd just been allowed to play, right? Instead of putting all these barriers in his way. So that's what I keep coming down to. Like, you're right. I'm still not sure what what your trauma is. Your trauma is about the fact that Well, I don't owe you my trauma, Jody. Huh? I don't owe you my trauma. Well, that's what the question was. That's what I thought you were. I thought that's what you were answering. I thought you were answering the question about your trauma surrounding these discussions. I don't have to tell you the details of my trauma for you to believe that I have been traumatized. You can just accept that I have been traumatized. No, I'm not. I do not have to just paint a picture of it. Okay, wait, wait, hold up. Time out. (laughs) I didn't know there was a specific incident. I thought you were linking traumatic feelings to our discussion about partisanship. Yes, both things are true. Both things are true. The thing is, is that I think of it in the way that I think of like early Christianity, where like early Christians were persecuted, right? So like they had to like meet up on like corners and pretend to talk about something else or like kind of hide what they were doing. And they would like draw the fish in the sand, or at least that's the story that I heard, right? When you're being persecuted by the system around you or a full place is not made for you in that, in that society. So you have to have like little signs and like cues. Right. And like, I know that the black community has plenty of these in which you kind of, you know, interrogate each other gently and increasingly in order to figure out whether or not the other person is like safe to talk to or about something or ask a question of, and women do that with each other as well. And after the election, I, I thought it was just me at first. I didn't fully recognize like the trauma that that rose up in me when I saw that second debate for what it was, because I thought it was just me. I thought it was just isolated. And then every woman that I talked to after that, and I don't have a great memory. We've already talked about this several times in the show. I don't have great recall, but I can recall very, very, very clearly like their positions on the stage and sort of the lighting and just sort of like, and I feel myself sort of choked with fear when I talk about it and when I remember it, like you can hear it in my voice right now. If you listen, I can hear it in my voice. And once I started talking to other women about it, or they told me that, you know, it was like the same story over and over and over again, that women that I spoke with was like, yes. And like, you didn't even have to finish saying it. You'd just be like that moment during the, and then it goes the second debate. And then like, you know, with like this rush and then you would finish a line. And then like the two of you were like telling like your own individual story, but like in this choir of voices realizing that like so many of us had the same experience watching that debate. So, so our discussions were about the right wing acting in bad faith um, about the two-party system and it was a signal it was a signal not just to hillary clinton it was a signal to every woman in america that they're the place that we thought we had for ourselves in this society was was not ours legitimately and that we would not hold it much longer 
And I mean, it was a signal of everything that was to come. It was a signal that every freedom and, and power that we had gained, we were going to lose. It was as base as the creepy guy following you down the aisle. It was literally as, as primal as that, but it was also as sophisticated as a party basically sending a signal to half of the population of America that they did not have a place in politics, that did not belong to them. They did not have the right to help set the rules that, that the, we would all abide by, that the rules didn't apply to men in power. They, we all knew that they don't, you know, we already already knew that, but we thought that we could try to make the rules apply to everybody. We thought we could finally do that if we could get women in power. But he was just sending a signal and through him, the Republican Party was sending a signal. Like every little bit of power you thought you had, we're going to come for it. You don't even have, like, do you know that women have been arrested for having miscarriages? I did not know that. That's happened since Trump's been in power. So what you're saying is that because Trump was elected, are, are you saying that the people that voted for him must be in support of that type of behavior in, in terms of him stalking Hillary on stage and um, treating her as prey, like you said? No, um, is that... no I'm, not, I'm not saying that indiv individuals necessarily all heard heard the message or knew that that's what they were voting for. Like, I can't remember if we discussed this or if it was in another conversation, but I know it came up in cast as well. It's like the fact that so many white women voted for Trump, right? And, and so many of us like me, who are impressively naive, considering, um, we're like, how? How could they vote against their interests that way? But they were voting for their interests. They were just voting for different interests than than I wanted them to vote for. They were voting for their white power. They were voting, you know, for their place in society that they had attained through privilege and, and whiteness and money instead of sort of the vulnerabilities that they felt that like they would face if they voted as women. And it wasn't just you have to vote for Hillary because she's a woman versus you know, Trump, because he's a man, it, it, it kind of comes across that way. And I think that that actually skewed in the Republicans favor, they can make it as as sort of didactic as that. It was more that like, many of us women, whether we knew it intellectually or not, we could feel in our bones, that what he was setting up what was beginning with like the, the fact that it leaked that he, you know, that he bragged about assaulting a woman. And that he was never going to face any consequences about that. He was setting into motion this machine that was going to like, basically he was daring people like hold me accountable. Let's see if you do. And it was almost like a test case, you know? So it seems like of all the people that Trump has come for, maybe he started with women and we just didn't notice because we as a society don't really care about what happens to women. We care about what happens to individual women pretty much Every man that I've that I've ever felt close with or trusted has cared if he's heard a woman tell him a story about something that's happened to him. It's not enough to to rise up against. It's not enough. The systems in place that allow this to happen are so invisible. They're so entrenched in our society, just like with black folks. Like we don't even recognize some of the systems that are working against black folks because because they're invisible, because they're so old, because they They've never been challenged directly. They've never, like, it's so hard to point out the links. 
you know, between one thing and the other. And you, you kind of start to sound like a conspiracy theorist as you go, okay, well, first this, and then this, and then this. And someone's like, but wait, that, that would just make someone evil if they like followed all those steps in order to do that to another person. And it's like, well, no, not if there's a system in place that allows them to think that it's okay and that there won't be any consequences for it. Because if there's a system in place for it, then, they, then it's normalized and then they don't see it as something wrong. So then that brings us back to the conversation that we started to have about domestic abuse right? Like we may never know what effect domestic abuse had on the election or on any election, but like, it would be amazing to see if someone did like a real deep study on it. I don't know what you would study. Like I'm not a social scientist, but like if someone could figure out like what to look at to figure out what kind of effect domestic abuse had on the election, I think the numbers would be really interesting. I'm not sure where to go from here. <laughs> um, there, there was there was a few things that you brought up that I wanted to ask you about. I, I don't remember exactly what you said, but it was something about believing or not believing women. Do you think that, well, anyone, but we're, we're talking specifically about women and the Me Too movement. Do you think that women who, you know, ra- raise a complaint of abuse, sexual abuse, or physical abuse, do you think they should be like automatically believed or do you think they should be heard, listened to, and the incident investigated? I oof, I don't even know if you fully understand what you just asked. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> like, of course, I believe that women should be believed and in, in their claims investigated. Like at the very minimum, they should be believed, listened to, and in, in their in their claims investigated. That is not what happens. Wait, wait, but I'm, make, I'm making a distinction. I'm, I'm making a distinction. Because, yes, because to believe someone means there's no need for investigation. It's, I believe you. This thing happened. But you said believed, in, you said believed, listened to, and investigated as no, if no, it was those, those all part two, of one. No, no, those are two separate things. So if, I, if, if you say, um, so a woman makes a complaint. If we say we believe them, then we're operating as if this thing happened factually versus she made a complaint. All right. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't, I don't know factually what happened. Let's go investigate and find out. I think in our current society, like just blanket believing women would essentially serve as affirmative action. It's not the final, like, you know, destination, we don't want to always need affirmative action in order to have fairness, but it's like a way of leveling the playing field. I think in our current society and our current justice system, if we just start at a blanket belief, this happened, if someone said it happened, if a, if a woman, if a child, if a trans person, if a man says that they were assaulted, if we just start from a place of belief, you know, I think that actually could serve as, as a, as a good stepping point towards where we want to be in our justice system, an affirmative action, if you will. I don't have much to add. <laughs> Do you see the connection now, though, between partisanship and um, and what we've been talking about? Um, not really, but you feel very strongly about it. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's cool. <laughs> so what I'm, what I'm ultimately saying is that the system was not built for us, right? So our constitution, I I get that, but that's not one side. That's not one party's thing. That's both parties. The entire system is structured to keep the people in power in power. Like that's how this thing works. 
this is why I ultimately came around to realizing that I agreed with you. Like, I agree with you that if you meet an individual on the street, like, regardless of their party affiliation, they're going to, every individual that you meet on the street, if you have the chance to have an honest, open conversation with them, they're going to be acting in good faith. They're going to believe that they're acting in good faith. They're going to want to believe that the people who are sort of like vetting candidates for them are acting in good faith. They're also going to, you know, want to believe that the other side is acting in bad faith because otherwise, like if I'm in the right and someone disagrees with me, that means that they have to be in the wrong. We don't like complexity, you know, in the United States. We have to simplify things. We have to turn it into black and white. We have to turn it into pro-life or pro-choice, you know, like, and we don't want to analyze the complexity of those things. We don't have the time for it. We don't, we're not educated well enough to have the con- the actual like conversations that we think we're having. And this is where, this is where I know that I'm different because I don't think I'm right. I hope I'm right. I, I'd like to believe I'm right, but I'm very open to the possibility that I'm not right. And if someone presents me with an, an argument that makes sense, then I'm open to changing my opinion. I've done it with guns. <laughs> I've done it with corporate tax credits. I've done, you know, I've done it with a number of issues where it's like I was presented with an argument that made sense, and I was like, all right, yeah, you know what, I, I can get with that. I, I think I'm different in that regard than most people because I think, like you said, most people believe they're right, and if you think you're right, then to realize that you're wrong humans take as some sort of i don't know we take it threateningly we take it as you know i don't know some personal fault or or something i don't know so then we can't be wrong and so then you know we we get locked into our positions we barricade ourselves and you know behind our ideologies even when there are you know um better arguments or arguments that would be persuasive we block them out um that was fun and once again i win (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm laughing but like this once again i win thing like that is our problem as a society why does somebody have to win if this is like i kind of see what we're doing as a think tank for how we can build a better society right we all win i went to a socialist jewish summer camp and everything was a tie (laughs) (laughs) it was great (laughs) (laughs) was it great was it (laughs) thanks for listening to civics y'all if you are in louisiana i hope you registered to vote but if you're outside of louisiana uh, maybe take this moment to make sure that you're registered you can use the secretary of state's website in your state um, or vote.org to make sure that you're registered to vote um, and to find out when the deadlines are for your state and what early voting and vote, my, vote by mail options you may have. This month on Civics, y'all, we'll be talking about various aspects of voting, from defunding the po- I was going to say defunding the police, <laughs> from from defunding the postal service to gerrymandering, voter suppression. <laughs> I don't remember what else. Listeners, you have some homework. We would like to hear from you. If you're in the South, if you're not in the South, wherever you are, we would love to know your thoughts about this show. Do we cover civics enough for you? Do we cover too much civics? Not enough. 
Do we go on too many weird tangents? Um, I know I talk about books a lot, but I'm not going to apologize for that. And I probably will still do that. But I still want to hear from you. We want to hear, hear your thoughts. And our email address for the podcast is civics.yall.podcast at gmail.com. And if you don't live in the South, y'all is spelled Y apostrophe A-L-L. But of course, you can't put an apostrophe in an email address. So it's just Y-A-L-L. So civics.yall dot podcast at gmail.com please let us know your thoughts we'd love to know what you're thinking about this show what else do you agree with me how much do you agree with me uh what parts of me do you what uh what parts do you agree with me the most on so basically you're inviting our, our listeners <laughs> to like join you in bullying me <laughs> I, that's not it at all <laughs> whose side are you on are you team Jody or are you team Emily or are you team Sarah? <laughs>